0: I bring you greetings this morning from your brothers and sisters in the Oceanside United Reformed Congregation. And I am glad to be here with you this morning. Our passage from God's Word comes this morning from the Gospel of Mark, chapter uh, 12. And we'll start at at verse... uh, 28, and we'll go to the end of the chapter, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, and beginning at verse 28, God's holy word. with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly, and in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and, for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people put putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which... Make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Congregation of the Lord, thus far the word of God, may he write this word on our hearts and may he give us true understanding. We find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark coming towards the end and, and uh, I, I don't know if you remember but I think I was probably preaching through Mark the last time I was here and so I've kept on going. You'll have to catch up. And I call this passage the command, the Christ and the coins. Uh, This Gospel was written by uh, uh, John Mark, whom we know a little bit in the Gospels and the Epistles, a colleague, sometime colleague of the Apostle Paul, but particularly associated with the Apostle Peter. And as I understand the history, he wrote this Gospel particularly for Latin-speaking Christians, possibly, perhaps probably in Rome. Uh, And this letter was sort of a follow-on to a visit the Apostle Peter had made to Rome. We're looking at about A.D. 43, 42, 43, 44, but the early 40s A.D., so uh, less than a decade or so, or about a decade or so after the death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus. So uh, uh, very early in the history of the church, Uh, and he's following up the visit of the the Apostle Peter, who had been there for some time, and essentially summarizing the gospel that the Apostle Peter had preached among these Latin-speaking Christians. And I've I've been thinking, for purposes of understanding this gospel, uh, about this being written to Roman Christians. And uh, although we normally think about the gospel of Matthew as a gospel that's chiefly interested in the kingdom, the gospel of Mark is also very much interested in the kingdom. And we know that because one of the opening verses has our Lord Jesus coming and announcing the kingdom of God. And so... Uh, As I've been reading uh, the Gospel of Mark and preaching through it, I've been asking what does it say about the kingdom uh, and what does it say about uh, his Christ. And and so Mark is, I I think, saying something to these uh, Roman Christians uh, uh, like this. You people know about kingdoms. They're at the center of one of the world's great empires. So imagine living in Washington, D.C., There are essentially two kinds of people who live in in D.C. and in the metro area. Those people who are somehow connected with the government directly and everybody else who is connected with the government indirectly and then possibly a few other folks who have nothing to do with the government, but that would be a very small group of people indeed. And so if you live in Washington, D.C., uh, what do you think about? Well, you think about power and you think about how to get power and how to keep power and who has power and who doesn't have power and so, if you imagine living in Washington D.C. or living in Sacramento, when, where there are either you work for the government or you work for somebody who's trying to get the government to do something, you can imagine what life is like. Well, it's very much the, the way it was for folks in Rome. They knew about power. They knew about kingdoms. They, they knew about the exercise of power, the acquisition of power, and the apostle or the Gospel of Mark wants to say to these people, "Listen, I want to talk to you about a kingdom, and I want to talk to you about a king." but I want to talk to you about a kingdom and a king that's a little different than that with which you are familiar. I want to talk to you about power, but I'm going to talk to you about a kind of power that is different than that with which you are familiar. And in this particular passage, we find our Lord Jesus at the end of three controversies with a series of Jewish officials who are also very much interested in the acquisition and maintenance of power, their own power, not so much the power of the kingdom, not so much uh, the power of God in the world through the kingdom, that is the church, but their own power, their own influence, and so in order to maintain their own power and their own influence, they have come to Jesus uh, three times now, and this is the this is third and disparate groups have come to Jesus. Groups that uh, naturally were absolute enemies. Think again in, in terms of Washington politics. Uh, think of a of a hard right conservative and a hard left, you know, uh, liberal getting together in order to uh, get something done that was in the interests of both of them. Well. That very thing had happened, and they had come and tried to trap Jesus. And again, folks had come, and uh, Pharisees had come and tried to trap Jesus. And now, for a third time, right, one of the scribes—that is, one of the legal scholars, one of the fellows who made his living studying, and interpreting, and explaining, giving the authoritative explanation of the 613 commandments—if you—if you, if you uh, isolated and counted up all of the commandments in the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the, the Torah. the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, if you add up all of the commandments in there, there are 613. And this fellow's job was to give the authoritative explanation of those 613 commandments. How do they apply? What does it mean? What what can you do to keep from breaking the law? What constitutes a breaking of the law? How can you break the law in some cases without being seen to be breaking the law? Was one of the things that, that, that they did. They wouldn't admit doing that, but that's in fact what they did. They had all kinds of rules for, for example, the Sabbath. And of course, the the Sabbath is a divine institution. There's nothing wrong with the Sabbath, but they had it set up so that you could look like you were keeping the Sabbath and not keep the Sabbath at all. For example, you could set down a bedroll a certain number of paces from your home, and that was your new home. And so they had set up a certain number of steps you could take on the Sabbath. And so you could go, uh, let's say, a thousand paces. I don't, know. I don't remember how many it was. It doesn't matter. They would take a certain number of paces, lay down a bedroll. This is now my home. Well, got to, now you have a second home. So now you can go a certain number of paces from that home. Well, you can see. You do that for three or four you know, uh, weeks, and pretty soon you can go as far as you want. And you're keeping the Sabbath. It's a beautiful thing. When you've got the law all wrapped up, you've figured it out, and, and you're in control of it. It's no longer in control of you, you see. So one of these fellows comes to our Lord Jesus, and, and uh, he, he's been watching this discussion. And in fact, um, our, our uh, English translations are uh, maybe not as clear, in some, at least in this case, as, as we might like. He, he's been watching these debates. He's aware of these debates. He's at least heard about these debates, having heard the series of, of debates, right, Mark says, uh, he comes one of, one of these uh, scholars, legal scholars, comes to Jesus, uh, and and he's got a question for him, and it's a very difficult question, and it's it's a kind of a trial. This is a, a wisdom contest. He's putting each time they have tried to put Jesus on trial, and each time they tried to ask him a question that would cause him, uh, in their view, to lose part of the constituency. You you notice in the uh, as for we'll just pick on the Republicans for a minute, as the Republicans are running for. For president, you know, if you ask this one this question and if he gives the wrong answer, he'll lose the base. If we ask this one that question, he'll lose that part of the base, you see. And these questions are mm, sort of trick questions, but they're, they're loaded questions. They're questions that, that no matter how you answer it would seem, someone's going to be offended and your chance of gaining power is going to be reduced, you see. And that's how they're thinking of Jesus. And so they've come with these very difficult, even trick questions to see if they can get him to say something that will offend uh, at least part of what they consider his growing movement, which they see as a threat to their own power. And so here he comes, this legal scholar, with this very difficult question, which one of the commandments is the chief of all of the commandments? And in verse 29, our Lord Jesus uh, gives us the first part of the answer, and that is the command. So we think about the command, the Christ, and the coins. Jesus answered, and he said, the first one is this. And he said something which, frankly, when I reread it for the purposes of writing this sermon, I was a little surprised. I didn't expect him to say it. I didn't remember that he'd said it, because usually we think about Matthew 22, and and I hadn't thought about it in uh, the way that it is put in, in Mark for for a while. And he says... He doesn't go where we think he might go. He goes to Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, which was the one of the fundamental elements of synagogue worship every Saturday was the recitation of what the Jews called the Shema, or if we pronounce it the way my Hebrew teacher made us pronounce it years ago, the Shema. It's hard for us to say that. We don't make that noise ordinarily. You have to go somewhere in the back of your throat and Make your tongue go around in circles. And, and that's a, a Hebrew verb which means listen, pay attention. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Yahweh, our God. Yahweh is one. Our God is not like the gods of the nations. Our God is unique. Our God is a covenant God. Our God is a God who speaks and who acts and who redeems and who keeps his promises. And our God is a God who is, as opposed to all the idols who are not. Children, when you go into a Chinese restaurant and you see a a, a golden statue of a fat man with a naked belly, is he alive? If you talk to him, will he talk back to you? If you pray to him, will he help you? I don't think so. You can try it. Just knock on him one time and see when you go in. And I bet he doesn't do anything. Well, Scripture says that our God is alive. And if you talk to him, he hears you. And he answers. And he listens. And he helps. And he saves. Our God is different. Because our God is an actual God, as opposed to all those who are not gods. Gods we make up in our minds. and Gods we make up in our hearts. and Gods we make with our hands, even. And so the, Jesus says the first commandment, and he starts with Deuteronomy 6, 4. Right? The, the Shema, the fundamental confession of the biblical faith. Our God is one. Our, our God who is the Lord, and he is one. He's not many, and he's unique. And there are lots of other things that, that are true that come from that one verse. And then he goes on to quote Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all of your faculties is what it means with all that you are with with your mind with your heart with your soul with uh, with uh, so the things that you love the things that you think the things that you choose to do with all that you are you should love the lord your god and then he quotes uh, from leviticus 19 which is which says love your neighbor as yourself which by the way at the though he doesn't quote it here this scribe, having probably memorized uh, at least most of the Torah, would have known what was, what the next part of this verse is. The end of that verse, it says, I am the Lord. And so the beginning and the end of the verses that our Lord Jesus quotes for this fellow are very significant. Because the passage, in effect, he He takes two passages and he sort of of puts them together. And it begins with, I am the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. And then it closes with, I am Yahweh. So it begins with Yahweh and it closes with Yahweh. Our Lord Jesus is saying something very significant. What do you think he's saying? He's saying something about himself as well as saying something about God's moral expectation. So the, the fellow comes with a trick question. You pick, Jesus, Rabbi, Yeshua. You pick, out of all the 613 mitzvot, what is the most important and what does our Lord do? Well, he summarizes the entire law in two words. Love God and love your neighbor. But he, but he bookends that law with a declaration of who God is. Who the Lord is. Why? Because implicit in this is a message not only about what the law is, and we'll come to that in just a second. Implicit in this is a message about who gives the law. It's Yahweh who gives the law. It's the Redeemer God who gives the law. It's the Sovereign Lord who, who parted the waters of the Red Sea so that, so that God's people could go through on dry, on dry ground. That's the sovereign God who gives the law. And and our Lord Jesus is saying, you know, I know something about all of that because I am that sovereign God who gave the law. God the Son is the Word. You know, we, we think about John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. We think about that all the time, of course, relative to... The deity of Jesus. And that's perfectly right, as we should. But, you know, it's, it is it is very much about the deity of Jesus. But it, it, it also says, I am, right, or, or in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the revelation. In the beginning was the disclosure. What does that mean to say? Jesus is the same person as the word. He is the revelation. He was in the beginning. If if Jesus is God the Son, God the Son is the revelation. If God the Son is the one who reveals God, who was thundering at Sinai? Who manifested God throughout the whole history of redemption before Israel? It was God the Son. How do I know that? Well, Hebrews 12 puts, if you, if you read it carefully, we don't have time to do it this morning, but Hebrews 12 puts Jesus at the top of Mount Sinai, the, 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 the mountain, the holy Zion that can't be seen and that's more holy than Sinai. He is the head of the heavenly city. And so we, he's saying here implicitly, I am. Yahweh, who gave the law. So, you're, so so now you have the ironic situation of a scholar of the law coming to trick the one who gave the law. And of course it doesn't work, does it? And so our Lord Jesus summarizes all of the law of God with these two words. Love God with all your faculties and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and this This scribe, unlike some of the other folks who've come to test Jesus, is no fool. And he recognizes that, in fact, Jesus answered in the best possible way. Which is a good thing, by the way, when you agree with God, just in case you were wondering about how that works. He recognized that, yeah, you know what? That's absolutely right. Who knows what he was thinking when he was asking that question, if he he had in mind sort of an ideal answer. But as soon as our Lord spoke, the absolute truth of what he said struck that man. And he said, you know, you're right. The heart of the law is to love God with all your faculties and your neighbor as yourself. And he even uh, summarizes really what our Lord Jesus said. And he recognizes that Jesus invoked the Shema, and you know he must have been very very troubled about that and so if you if you as uh, uh, you think about then finally what else is our lord jesus saying jesus uh, saw that this fellow had also answered wisely that is with a, a modicum of humility and recognition right of what is really going on. You know, one of the great struggles, really, of human life, but particularly of the Christian life, but really, as a general truth for all humans, is getting in touch with and staying in touch with reality. Now, you children probably think that, well, of course, I know what reality is. I'm 16. I know everything. The moment I turned 16 I became omniscient and became an econ- I know because I have a, a 17-year-old daughter and and a 15-year-old and the 15-year-old's right on the cusp of omniscience. <laughs> the 17-year-old has achieved omniscience. She knows all, sees all and says all. So <laughs> But as you get older you find that it's not you have less of this and more of this and you find that getting a hold of reality isn't so easy as you thought when you were 16. Well, what's the truth? What's really real? This guy is on the cusp of getting a hold of what's really true and what's really real, what really matters. And Jesus recognizes this and he says, you are not far, and he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, first of all, if you're not far from the kingdom of God, it means you're not there yet. Well, let's get that right. But what does it mean to say you're not far from the kingdom of God? You're just on the cusp of it. You're just on the outside of it. Well, what he means to say is what we say in the Heidelberg Catechism. Right? What three things are necessary for you to know that in this comfort you may live and die happily? First, what's the first thing you need to know? The greatness of my sin and misery. And this fellow is just about to figure out the greatness of, of his sin and misery. Je- Jesus propounded the law to this fellow. Not only did he announce who he is, he propounded the law and he said, this is the absolute moral demand of God. You have to love God with all your faculties and your neighbor as yourself. And you need to get to grips with the nature, the absolute nature of of this command. And as you get to grips with the absolute nature of this command, right, you will be prepared to enter the kingdom of God. You have to know the greatness of your sin and your misery. Do you understand that God doesn't tolerate your best? Well, I did my best. I heard a fellow this morning, there's a really outrageous radio program on in Los Angeles in the morning, Sunday mornings, and there's a radio announcer who takes the persona of Jesus. And he was talking with a fellow, and he's pretending to be Jesus. And this fellow says, well, I'm a good guy. And I'm grateful that this fellow pretending to be Jesus at least had the wherewithal, the sense to say, well, that's not good enough. And that's absolutely right. That's not good enough. I tried isn't good enough. I did my best isn't good enough. What do you want from me, God? God says, I want everything. And I want it just exactly so. And that's the first step to getting to grips with reality is knowing that. He needs to know where he is. And, and the scribe is close. He says, look, I understand that to, to obey is better than sacrifice. And Jesus says, then obey is what he's saying. And then as you try to obey and as you try to do what the Lord, what, what, what the Lord requires of you, You come to understand that you can't do it. And that that's why, implicitly, Jesus is saying, That's why I am here. All right, what's the next thing Jesus says? Well, what's the next thing the passage says? Well, you look down at verse 35, where does Mark locate the narrative now? Where does Mark move the story? He moves the story to the temple. Jesus is teaching in the temple, and he begins now to respond to these scribes and these Pharisees. And he says, how can these legal scholars, these scribes and Pharisees say, but, to, but he mentions the legal scholars, the scribes, how can they say that the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, is the son of David? They, they were, he's challenging their assumption about that for which they were looking. They thought they knew what they needed. They thought they knew what they needed. Have you ever gone to the doctor and you said, listen, doc, I know what I've got. I figured it out. I looked it up on the internet. I went to MedMD. Right, dot com, and I fig- it's, all, it's all figured out. So listen, I want you to write me a prescription for this, this, and this. And I'll be fine. You don't have to look at me. You don't have to do any tests. You don't have to x-ray or MRI. Just just do what I'm telling you, doc. Well, when you go to the doc like that, you're, you're really not ready to be healed. Jesus says, you think you know what you need. You think you know, right, what's going to help you. You think a political messiah like Claudius, who was the emperor in Rome at this time, you think a Claudius-type figure in Palestine, right? only a Jewish Claudius, I'm going to throw off the Roman oppressors, you think that's what you need. And that's why you talk about the, the messiah as a son of David. And of course, it's true that the messiah would be a true son of David. And God had promised that a seed of David, a son of David would always be on the throne. That's true. But he said there's more to be known here. Because David himself, and here he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. This pastor says it's not only the most quoted psalm, it's the most quoted portion of the Hebrew Scriptures and all of the New Testament, Psalm 110, verse 1, and Psalm 110, verse 4. There are 22 direct or indirect references to Psalm 110. So if you want to know what the New Testament writers were thinking about and reading and meditating on as they thought about and preached and taught about our, our Lord Jesus, it was Psalm 110. So if you're looking for something to memorize this summer, Psalm 110 would be a useful thing to memorize. It's not not actually even that long. And he quotes Psalm 110. Yahweh says to Adoni, those are the names of the two characters in Psalm 110, sit at my right hand. The great Lord says to the, the, the suzerain says to the vassal, the prince, the lesser king in a sense, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And, of course, if you look at Psalm 110, uh, Adonai says, I will do it. Uh, Yahweh says, do this, and Adonai replies in the second half of the psalm, and he says, I will do it. And every verse of the first three verses matches up with a verse in the second half of the psalm. And everyone has a parallel except for for verse 4. We'll leave that for another time. David himself calls him... That is, David is Adoni, in a sense. Sit at my right hand for the purposes of Psalm 110. David calls, writing the psalm, right? David call, speaks of Adoni. That's what I meant to say. David speaks of Adoni, and Adoni is speaking to Yahweh. Well, if, if David calls the second one in Psalm 110 Lord, what does that mean? Jesus says. Do you understand? In other words, they're thinking about David, uh, the, the, the Messiah as only the son of David. But Jesus says there's something else to be known about the Messiah, and that is he is not only David's son, he is David's Lord. He's the one that David himself recognized as Lord. If you're going to understand what you need and who the Messiah is, Jesus says you have to know that he's not only David's son, he's also David's Lord. What does it mean to move from, be, from being near the kingdom of God to actually being in the kingdom of God? The difference between being near and in is the difference between knowing that Jesus or that the Messiah is the son of David and knowing and believing and trusting that He is also David's God. That's the difference between being on the edge of the kingdom and crossing over the threshold into the kingdom. Do you know this morning, grown-ups and children, do you know and trust that Jesus is not only David's Son in His humanity, but David's Lord in his deity. And have you put your trust in him this morning? Not only as David's Lord, but as your Lord. That's what, what I mean when I, call, when I talk, uh, call this section of the passage the Christ. Here he is standing in the temple, proclaiming the gospel. And I told you that every verse in the first three, every every of the first three verses of Psalm 110 has a parallel in the second half. So that so that Yahweh says, "Do this," and, the, and then there's a parallel verse in the second half of Psalm 110 where Adonai says, "I will do it." But there's one verse in, in Psalm 110, and that's verse four, that doesn't have a parallel. That's the middle of it. That's the heart of it. And Yahweh says, "I will make a covenant." I will swear on oath that that I will make you a priest like Melchizedek. And where do priests work? They work in temples. And where is Jesus standing as he preaches? He's standing in the temple. And he's saying, by his teaching and by his actions, I am that priest, king of David. I am here. and look at the reaction and the great throng heard him gladly it's interesting the crowd we don't have time to go into this but the crowd's been following uh, him all through the gospel and they haven't always responded positively it's interesting there that mark acknowledges that they have a positive response but perhaps more importantly this morning is how our we responding. And then, and then he goes after the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, beware, as he's teaching, as the priest king in the temple. Beware of these legal scholars. They don't love you. Right? What's he doing here? Having preached the law, he preaches the gospel. Now he's preaching the law again. Beware of the scribes. What, what are they doing? They like to walk around in long robes. And they like greetings in the marketplaces. There's nothing wrong with long robes. There's nothing wrong with with greetings in the marketplaces. But you see, he's getting after an attitude. He's getting after uh, something very significant. Why are they doing it? He's getting after motive. What's their motive for the robe? What's their motive for the greeting? Well, people are saying, Good morning, Rabbi. Oh, it's nice to see you, Rabbi. Here, have a muffin, Rabbi. It's kosher. Oh, it's so good to have you in our shop this morning, Rabbi. And they have the best seats in the synagogues, in the places of honor, at the feast. What's that all about? That's about power. And that's about control. And that's about authority. And Jesus says, that's what these cats are all about. Power, control, and authority. They devour widows' houses. They don't love widows. They don't love anyone. They're not after your best interests. They are not laying down their lives for you. They make long-winded prayers so that you'll see how pious they are. And they will receive the greater condemnation. But even as he preaches the law, he is, by implication, preaching the gospel by contrast, saying, but there is one who also wears a robe and who also prays and who also is greeted. But he comes for one purpose, to love those for whom he came. He doesn't devour widows' houses. He supplies them. That's the Christ. And finally, and finally, we come to the end of the passage, verses 41 through 44. Not only then do we see the, something about the command and something about the, the Christ, but we see something else. And that is, I think, uh, he's, he's talking to us about the nature of what it is to be in the kingdom. What does it look like for those who have entered into a relationship by faith a saving relationship, a justifying relationship by faith with the Messiah. How do you know? What does it look like? And I think he's answering that question here, verses 41 through 44. A lot of writers don't get the connection here with the rest of of this passage, starting in verse 28. Oftentimes it's been treated as an appendix, but it's not an appendix. It's absolutely essential to what Mark is saying, and, and implicitly then, or by connection, what our Lord is saying. Verse 41, And he, and he Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury. So he's, he's been teaching in the temple, and now we find him sitting down opposite the treasury. This is a very deliberate act. He's positioning himself to do something significant, to make a point. Jesus never did anything randomly. Jesus never did anything randomly during his ministry. Everything he did was strategic, was, was, was intentional and carried with it a message. So he sits opposite the treasury. And he's watching people, just, just sitting there on his haunches, watching people put money in the offering box. And, and many people are coming up, wealthy ones are coming, and putting great sums of money in the offering box. And of course, you know how that works in human society. Again, when it comes to power, when it comes to politics, when it comes to influence, who gets to have a say in things? Who gets to run things? It's the one who puts the biggest shekel, the largest number of shekels in the box often. They are the ones who get to say. They are the ones in, in earthly institutions and too often in churches. They are the ones who get to say who's who and what's what. And then look at verse 42. And a poor widow came, and she put in two small copper coins. Now, those coins are little tiny coins. In fact, they were so tiny that you couldn't even read the printing on them, the the, the stamped lettering on them. They were something like an eighth of a penny. They were worthless. How many of you now today will bend over to pick up a penny? Let's say you go out and it's 103 degrees. When you leave church today, I don't know that it'll be that, but let's say it's hot. And you go out and there's a penny on that black pavement out there, that tar. You're going to bend over and pick that up or you're going to let it go? I saw some of you wanted to pick that up. That's all right. Some of you are closer to the ground than some of us. Maybe it's not so much work. Well, would you bend over and pick it up if it were an eighth of a penny? What are you going to buy for an eighth of a penny or two eighths of a penny? Not much. Maybe nothing. I, can't, I don't know any place where you'll, they'll sell you anything for two-eighths of a penny. And that's what this woman put in. Almost nothing. And, and he calls his disciples. He's watching because he knows what's going to happen. He knows this woman comes. He knows this woman's going to put this in. And he calls his disciples over and he says, Come here, I want to, I want to show you something. I want to talk to you. I want you to see... Right? Remember, remember the, the first cat who came and he had a smart alec question? And then the second cat, he had a smart alec question. And then this guy, he's a little more pliable, and, but he had a smart alec question. And they all think that they understand the kingdom of God. But he says, let me show you who really understands the kingdom of God. Let me show you, men, who gets it. I say to you, I mean, I mean, I say to you, this poor widow who put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, what she put in is worth more than all the $100 bills. Why? And our, our text lets us down again a little bit at the end here. What the text actually says is, she put in Everything. What it, what it says literally is, right? she put in what, whatever she had, uh, she put in, the, and the last words of the text are, she put in her whole life. That's what it says. She put in her whole life. Our, our translators lost their nerve. And they have the nerve to put that in there because, frankly, that's just scary. What do you mean she put in her whole life? Nobody could put in their whole life. She did. How come she put in her whole life? Because she knows the king. And she knows what she is. She's in touch with reality. She knows what she is. She knows who she is. She knows to whom she belongs. She has her priorities straight. She she has a clear sight of reality. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own. But I belong body and soul, life and in death. To my faithful Savior, Jesus. That woman understood that. She's not in the kingdom because she put in Those two small, ridiculously worthless coins. Even in the first century Palestine, they were worthless. And I've seen them, actually. What she put in was her whole life. Because that's all she had. And why did she dare put in all she had? Because everything she had had been bought with a price by the Messiah, priest, king, the prophet, priest, and king. She was already looking forward to his death and his resurrection. She was already a citizen of his kingdom. And she had no doubt that if she gave him everything, he who was going to give his everything would give everything to her. That's how the kingdom works. That's what it means to be in the kingdom. That's what it means to trust the Christ of the kingdom. That's what it means as a consequence of the the love and obedience and righteousness and death and resurrection of the king of the kingdom to commit oneself to following the commands of the kingdom. May God grant us grace to see things the way that widow saw things. And may he do so by his Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God and merciful Father, as we come before you this morning, having meditated on your word, we call on you in the name of Jesus our Savior and your Son who laid down his life for us. And we pray that this morning you may once again renew our hearts in trust in confidence and devotion to him who loved us so much. And may you work in us, O oh Lord, faith that takes us over the boundary and into the kingdom. And having, having been made citizens of the kingdom by your grace alone, through faith alone in the Savior alone, may you give us grace, O Lord, to see things as clearly as that widow. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.